Welcome everybody, in person, live, Facebook, Zoom, I appreciate everyone giving their time to join us this evening for Spice of Life, Parshas Bishalach, title this evening before we give a synopsis of the portion, is the Mun, I had to write Mana because people might think man, so the Mun, a timeless lesson. A timeless lesson. We'll see what that has to do. The man, the heavenly food that was provided for us in the desert throughout our journey. We'll see uh, what that has to do or the timeless lesson for each and every one of us. Before that, let's give a brief synopsis of the portion of Parshas B'Shalach. So the Jewish people, they left Egypt. They're on their way to the land of Israel. Now we happen to know that their journey is going to take much longer than what was going to be. But as of this point, they went a little bit of a roundabout way. Many of the commentators discussed why they had to go in a roundabout way. Why couldn't they just go straight to Israel where they ended up getting to the Yamsuf, the, the Sea of Reeds. And there, the Egyptians came and they went to attack the Jewish people. They came to attack the Jewish people. What was this? So Moses, Moshe told Paro that we want to leave for three days. We want to go worship uh, God in the desert. We want to go for three days. After three days, Paro had these messengers that went with the Jewish people. They came back and said, hey, they're not coming back. So the scene is set at the splitting of the sea, which happened on the seventh day after the exodus of Egypt. Right? So three days, they were gone. Paro said, hey, they're not coming back. Took three days to get to the Jewish people, and now that puts us at the seventh day. Paro had free will. Yes, his free will was taken away. Many of the commentaries tell us that. But there was still an element of choice here. God really orchestrated it that this needed to happen, that this was going to happen. But there were certain things that God allowed for free will to play a role in. Two aspects. One, there was an idol that the Egyptians worshipped that was right by the Yamsuf, that was right by the Sea of Reeds. And the fact that the Jewish people were stuck there the Egyptians thought, ah, our idol has has taken control. Our idol is manipulating them. That's why they're stuck. They're, they're wandering around. They're going all over. It's because our idol is out there and it's controlling. So that's why they went. All the idols were already destroyed. This one was the only one that remained throughout all of Egypt for this specific instance to allow the Egyptians to think that. They get to the Sea of Reeds. So Nachmanides tells us, as the Torah says, there was this heavy wind that was blowing. Heavy wind that was blowing the entire night before the splitting of the sea, which happened in the morning. Nachmanides asked, like, well, what does that have to do with anything? Who cares? Right? Since when does the Torah start to say, just by the way, just so you know, that day that the sea split, it was very windy. It was 50 degrees, actually a little chillier, 45 degrees. Like, it's irrelevant. Who cares what type of temperature it was? Were they wearing winter coats or not? It happened to have been Pesach time in the desert, so 
it was going to be warm. But why is the Torah telling us there was this there was this wind, this heavy wind, nonstop wind? So the Ramban Nachmanides says something, which we mentioned this concept last week, but it comes up all the time. Nachmanides says that God made it that this wind was continuously blowing, so the Egyptians would think that when the sea actually did split and the Jewish people are going through. So they had a choice. Should we chase after them or should we not? Well, if it's God that split the sea, I'm not going to take my chances. I'm not going to chase after them because that's doomsday for us. But, but it wasn't God. Because there was this wind that was blowing the entire night and this wind that came, that's what caused the sea to split. It was the wind. So the Jewish people went through the same way that it was fine for them because its wind was going the whole time. So it's fine for us. They went ahead and pursued. And we know what ended up happening. Jewish people made it through. The waves came crashing down and the Egyptians were drowned there in the Sea of Reeds. The obvious question is, you, the Egyptians, just went through ten plagues. Whoever made it out of the ten plagues alive had to have had this unbelievable recognition of God. We read it at the Seder. We say that the magicians, the sorcerers, they were all saying, you saw the hand of God. You went through plague after plague after plague where there was the Jewish people not touched. The Egyptians, they were the ones that were afflicted. Death of the firstborn, exactly at midnight, all the firstborns, none of the Jews, but all of the Egyptians. Constantly throughout for almost a year, you saw plague after plague, the hand of God, exactly what was said. Now you get to the sea. And never before have you seen the sea split. And the Jewish people are going through. So what did you think that the Egyptians would say? <laughs> you know what? Maybe it's the wind, but I, I, I doubt it. After all we just went through, after all that we have seen, it happens to be the moment that the Jewish people are there stuck at the river at the sea bank, they can't go anywhere, and the sea splits for them. Not, not God. R really? You really don't think it's not God? Bottom line, at the end of the day, what Nachmanides is telling us is again, people believe what they want to believe. They tell their, we, we, they tell themselves, we tell ourselves stories, things that we want to believe, a narrative that we want to push. So they want to believe, they didn't want to see or acknowledge the fact that this was the hand of God. People believe what they want to believe and that's what allowed the Egyptians to go ahead and ignore the very compelling reason that this is God and go ahead and attack, fight off, try to get the Jewish people. And as we mentioned last week and we'll mention again, there are so many aspects where there are Holocaust deniers. There are people who believe what they want to believe. They push a certain story even though the facts are very different or even though there are many different things pushing one way to clearly see the hand of God, but we don't want to ever acknowledge that. And that happens not just on an extreme level, let's say such as Holocaust denial, such as splitting of the sea, we're about to go in and no, it's not God. But we all do that to an extent as well. We tell ourselves certain stories or we believe what we want to believe or we tell ourselves certain things where 
We want to pursue a certain desire. We want to do something that may not necessarily be in the Torah way. So we, we tell ourselves, uh, yeah, maybe maybe God's not really involved or maybe God's not really listening or this is different because of whatever the reason may be. We, we tell ourselves certain things because we want to believe what we want to believe. We want to do what we want to do. What here is, what, what the Nachmanides is telling us is to be aware, to, to be cognizant of that struggle, of that push, that desire that people have, and to be able to kind of nip it in the bud before so we don't end up pushing or pursuing that which we want to, even though it may be incorrect. So the Jewish people make it through the splitting of the sea, Many different commentaries. Was it one? Was it 12 different tunnels? One for each tribe. The sea was, it became like a marble floor, very easy to push through. There were fruits and trees that were sprouting up in the, in the ocean or in the sea there for the, for the people to eat if they were hungry. And when it came time for the Egyptians to come through, all of a sudden that marble ground turned back to the muddy bottom of the ocean type thing which made it very difficult and that's what ended up leading to the Egyptian demise. The Jewish people make it through. The Torah tells us they get to a place called Mara. Mara was they were going in the desert. Mara means bitter. The water there was bitter. There was nothing for them to drink. And if you go in a desert without any water, they started complaining, Moshe, why did you take us out of Egypt? We're all going to die over here. Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here? That's what the Jewish people said. God told Moshe, take, take this stick, take this special stick, put it in the water, and that will sweeten the water. That will sweeten the water. And that's what happened. The Jewish people had what to drink. Yet we learn from here, Ezra, the prophet Ezra instituted as follows. Well, actually Moshe instituted, Ezra instituted the last one. But Moshe instituted from this episode that this happened, the Torah says that they went, the Jewish people went three days without water. So it wasn't just the physical sense that they went three days without water, but Torah is representative of water. It's compared to water, that's what it is. So Moshe said, never should we as a people go three days without the Torah. So that's why we have the public Torah readings. We have it on Shabbos. Not on Sunday, we have it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. The third day, Thursday, and then Friday, none, Shabbos. So we always will have three days, or never going more than three days, without the Torah reading. Ezra instituted the reading by Mincha, but Moshe was instituting from this episode here, three days without Torah, we should always have the Torah reading at least every three days. Okay? The Mun, we're going to get to in a moment. That's going to be more of the focus of this evening. And the Parsha ends off with the War of Amalek. The War of Amalek. Right before this, the Jewish people were commanded in Shabbos. So even though next week when we read the Ten Commandments, Shabbos is one of the Ten Commandments, it was already given to the Jewish people beforehand. It was given to us in Mara. That's when uh, we received the, the mitzvah of Shabbos. Amalek was a nation that attacked us. A nation that attacked us. And it says, Asher Karcha Badarach, that they met us on the way. Which 
Rashi explains that karcha could also means they, they cooled off the way. They cooled off the waters, meaning they now made it more accessible, more of an option for nations to attack the Jewish people. Up until now, the, the, the Egyptians were the most powerful nation in the entire world. And the Jewish people, God, just wiped the floor with them, decimated. Nobody wanted to in the entire world. We say it in the Az Yashir, in the song at the sea that they sang right afterwards. It says that the people of, of Moab and, and, and those that were in Israel, they were, they were petrified. They were terrified. They heard that, oh, the Jewish people are on their way. They heard what just happened in, in Egypt, even though there wasn't social media. Word made it around. Maybe a little slower, but it made it all the way there. They heard everything that was going on. So Rashi says that Amalek came with a certain brazenness and they attacked the Jewish people. They attacked the Jewish people and they cooled off the waters. If anything, they should have made the waters much more hot. Because up until now, no one's going to attack the Jewish people. We're not going to attack them because, oh my gosh, how could we attack the Jewish people? Look at what they just did to Egypt. Fine, now somebody goes ahead and attacks and they lose. So whatever thoughts you may have been thinking, maybe we'll attack. Oh, this person went, tried, and they lost. That just solidifies our fear. We're not going to go ahead and attack. Why in the world would it cool off the water? If anything, it would make it hotter. No one's going to even try now because somebody did afterwards and... Their feelings are validated. Don't mess with the Jewish nation. Yet Rashi is highlighting to us that the nature of people is that if something is off limits, if something is unattainable, if that's how we view things, then that's how we view it. But once that barrier is broken, irrelevant if there was success or not, then it becomes attainable. Then it becomes something that, oh, Amalek, they didn't have the right battle plan. That's why they lost. But I would come in this way and I would come in that way. And that's why I'm going to go ahead and attack the Jewish people. The fact that they lost is irrelevant because they made the unattainable or the unthinkable thinkable. Roger Bannister, first one to, to run a, a four-minute mile or sub-four-minute mile. Nobody was ever able to do it before then, but now tons of people ha have done it. Because once something is done, irrelevant of success or not, but once it was attempted, once that barrier was broken, then the floodgates are open. And this has such relevance to our spiritual lives where there are certain things that if we put off limits or if we think something should never ever be done, then that's, that's a certain getter, that's a certain fence, that's a certain barrier that we have put up that this should never be done. I would never ever go ahead and do this. And I wouldn't think that anyone else would ever go ahead and do this. But once we hear one person did it, once we hear that somebody went ahead and did this crazy thing, then all of a sudden our thought process changed. Consciously or subconsciously, that barrier has been broken. The thoughts now are a little different. So when it comes to our spiritual lives, when we have certain things that are off limits and then somebody goes ahead and does it, we have a responsibility towards each other as a, as a community. 
to be able to uphold a, a certain standard because once that's broken, you have opened the floodgates for everybody else. Once somebody sees like, oh, that, that person did that or oh, this person did this, I would never, but, but now that it's done, that now has a tremendous impact on the way that we each think on things that were off limits now all of a sudden, oh, maybe, maybe I'll give it a try or maybe it's not so bad and we start to rationalize different thoughts until many times we actually do the unthinkable, meaning what we would have thought that we would never have done, we end up doing it ourselves. That's what Amalek teaches us, that they cooled off the waters. Even though they lost, it made the unthinkable thinkable. What I wanted to discuss more in depth this evening is the man, the heavenly food that the Jewish people had throughout their journey in the desert, that sustained the Jewish people throughout their journey in the desert. And it was given to them as described in the Torah in this week's portion. So if we look at the uh, source sheet here, chapter 16, verse 4 in Exodus, it says as follows. God said to Moshe, I will rain down this bread for you from the sky. The nation will go out. They will collect it every single day. So that I should test them. If they are going to be following my Torah, my laws, or not. God said, the man will fall every day. You will go out and collect it. It's not going to fall on Shabbos. There will be a double portion on Friday. I'm going to go ahead and see as a test if they're going to follow my Torah, if they're going to follow my laws. So the Torah specifically states that the man was given Laman Anasenu in order to test us. As a challenge. So what exactly was that test? And if anything, we shouldn't even view it as a test. The Barbanel, we'll get to his explanation a little later. But the Barbanel asks, it, it was not a test. This was a chesed. It was a, it was a kindness from God. You're in a desert. What else are you going to eat? God went ahead and provided every single day this heavenly food for you to, to eat. It's, it's a kindness. It's not a test. It's a kindness that God bestowed upon you. What is this referring to the test? So the Ramban Nachmanides, again, the Ramban lived from 1194 to 1270. He explains the test as follows. He says that God placed us in a situation. He says, This is source number two. The challenge was that they had absolutely no food. The only option that they had in the desert was this man, this heavenly food. They didn't know of it beforehand. Nobody heard of this man. They didn't have a certain tradition. Oh, the family recipe of how to cook the man is put it in the oven for 10 minutes at 350 and then take it out and fry. Right? They didn't have that. This was the first time ever. This was brand new to them. They didn't hear anything from their forefathers. And it came down every single day. And that's it. No, no leftovers. Nevertheless, they ended up fulfilling, listening to the word of God. Nachmanides tells us that the challenge of the man, imagine you go to your house 
So you go to sleep at night. What are you going to eat for breakfast tomorrow? We don't think about it. Maybe if we're on a diet, we got to plan exactly what we want to eat because we want to keep it under certain calorie. But overall, we're not necessarily like so worried, what am I going to eat for breakfast? Because I know I got food in the pantry and I have food in the fridge. Modern day technology, we're able to have these luxuries. And even back then, when you didn't have it, so maybe I couldn't store certain things without the refrigeration, but I at least had other products that I was able to have in my house. But imagine you go to sleep every single night, not here in Louisville. You're in the desert. There's no grocery stores around. There's no grass around. There's absolutely no way for you to get any nourishment whatsoever. And then you go into your house. You open up your fridge and it's empty. Every single night when you go to sleep, your fridge is empty. What's going to be tomorrow? I don't know. Where am I going to get food from? I don't know. I'm in the desert. That, that's a tremendous challenge. Going to sleep every single night, not knowing where your food is going to come from, not knowing anything about this, this mun, this heavenly food, that's a tremendous challenge. You're in the desert. Nachmanides says that this was given to the Jewish people. This test, as he has said, his definition of test is for our benefit. To be able to help us grow. And God was giving us to, to refine, to, to strengthen, to see if, if we were loyal, even in such a difficult, challenging circumstance. Are we going to be following God's commandment? Are we going to be listening? Are we going to try to, oh, let me save a little bit so I can have some food for tomorrow? That's not what God said. Rather, we have to have this element of trust, of faith, of what's going to be, I don't know that ends up building a certain reliance because when we're completely dependent on God, where, 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 when we are in a situation as such, then that builds up a certain stamina, a certain muscle strength of trust and reliance on God. When that's the only option, I don't have any other option. When I'm in such dire straits, that was a challenge that Nachmanides says. The Sworno learns a little differently. The Sworno learns the opposite. In source number three, the Sworno, who lived from 1475 to 1550, he explains that the challenge was Kishigiyah Misparne Shalom Bitsar. There's two ways that we could view work. What happens when I don't have to? toil. I don't have to put in hours and hours and hours to make a living. My sustenance is just there. The Jewish people didn't have to work the field. They didn't have to do any of those things. Their food just came to them. Zero work whatsoever. So the Sorno says, what happens when somebody doesn't have to, are they going to now utilize that free time to study the Torah to perform the commandments or are they going to oh I have so much more free time let me indulge in the other things that I've always wanted to do now that I have the free time the Sworno says now that you're being supported without having to go to work you don't have the 9 to 5 job the food is coming to you so what are you doing during that time that was the test the challenge of the month the Jewish people passed it where they didn't have any excuse to go ahead and do 
whatever. I, I can't study now because I, I got to go and work. I got to work. I got to work. No, 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 no. You don't, you don't have to work. So how do you respond? That was the challenge the way the Sworno says. On page number two, the Barbanel, the great uh, commentary from Spain, 1437 to 1508, was actually voluntarily agreed when the Jewish people were expelled from Spain in 1492. He was offered a position to stay as the finance manager in Spain. He was a brilliant person. And he said, my people are being exiled. I'm not staying here. I'm going, I'm going with them. So he explains as follows. He says... In a way similar to what Nachmanides said, that there's a certain element of when you're in that challenging circumstance of not knowing where your food is going to come. He said, though, the point of this test, the reason why this type of way was given was as follows. He says, one did not acquire this by either buying it or by putting in the work in the field, but rather it was complete kindness from God. You're in the desert. This food was given to you. And he says, therefore, they will thank God for his kindness every single day because that's when it's given. It's not a one time a week thing. Every single day, their food for the day was given to them. Complete kindness from God that builds up a certain level of gratitude that every single day I take absolutely nothing for granted because I don't know where that food is coming from, other than the fact that God granted me this kindness. And that kindness is every single day. So it was an exercise in gratitude that they were able to continuously build up and recognize this tremendous kindness from God. The fact that God was involved with them, giving them every single day sustenance, that trait of gratitude was going ahead and being built up within them every single day. That was a point of the test. And lastly, the Clay Yucker, one of the great commentaries on the Torah, 1550 to 1619, says that this was a test in bitachon. A test in bitachon, which is trust in God. If somebody goes ahead and says, when I have food in my pantry, when I have food in my fridge, I'm not worried about what's going to be tomorrow, yet I go ahead and say, what am I going to eat tomorrow? What's going to be? What do you mean what's going to be? Go look in your fridge. Plenty of options. Plenty of food. He says, Though, that is katni amuna. That is someone who does not have strength in faith. He says, but when somebody just has what they have now, they don't know what's coming tomorrow. Yet they have this complete trust, this complete faith in God. That is an exercise in this trait called bitachon, this trait called trust in God. And that is what I wanted to focus on this evening. Nachmanides says it. The Kleyucker says it. This word bitachon, trust in God. What exactly is that? What is this trait? How do we acquire it? What is it that, or how does it help us in our lives? Where the Chobos HaLavavos, the duties of our heart, which we'll get to a little later, but he says many different times, that bitachon, one of the great advantages of trusting God, is menuchas and of being at peace. Of being at peace. When I know, when I trust, 
that everything that happens is from God, when I trust that whatever happens to me is for the best, then I'm at peace. I'm not trying to take from this person, outdo that person, because I realize that this person's getting what they are supposed to be getting. I'm getting what I'm supposed to be getting. Bitachon doesn't mean, as a disclaimer from the beginning, Bitachon doesn't mean that everything is awesome. Everybody has that misconception. If you have bitachon, if you have trust in God, that means that there's nothing bad. No, there are challenging times. There are things that are very difficult. Nevertheless, I trust that God did it for the best for me. That's very different. That doesn't mean that everything is going to be amazing. That means that you're going to have challenges. There's going to be tough times, but I trust that that was supposed to be, that was meant for me, that was the best thing for me, albeit very hard, albeit very challenging. Going through a tragedy, no one is ever going to say, that was awesome. No one's ever going to say that, because it's a tragedy. But I have trust in God that it wasn't random. I have trust in God that even though I may not know the reason, I trust that that was specific challenge going through for me. And therefore, that was for the best. Difficult? Yes. Hard? Yes. But that was the best thing for me. I may not necessarily know it, or I may not necessarily see it right away, but I trust God that that was the best thing for me. Same type of aspect, you, you bring your child to get a shot at the doctor. So if you ever noticed, or if you remember as a child, you get your shot, and who's the first person that you go to give a hug to? Your parent. But what do you mean? You're the one who brought me here. If it wasn't because of you, I wouldn't have gotten the shot. Why in the world would I be going to hug you for comfort when I'm in pain? Because there's an element of trust that we have, that my parent is not going to hurt me. So I may not necessarily know, I may not necessarily see, but there's a reason. There's, there's, there's a reason why they brought me to have this painful experience called a shot. Oh, later on we find out, oh, because that's needed for our health. Okay. But we still go to our parents because there's that element of trust. So what is Bitochon? How do we acquire it? Source number five, first we have to recognize the source of bitachon, the source of trust. And yes, we're going to discuss this, this trait tonight, but believe me, it is a lifetime of work. And there's no way that I could fit any massive amount of this trait in a small class, but we'll discuss a little bit. Nachmanides tells us as follows, that there's something called amuna, there's something called faith, and there's something called bitachon, there's something called trust in God. And he says as follows, In order to have bitachon, in order to have trust in God, you first need to have emunah faith. He says you could have faith, but not have bitachon, but not have trust in God. But you cannot have bitachon, you cannot have trust in God, without first having faith. Can't be. And he gives a parable and he says, Just as a tree... And a fruit. I could have a tree without fruit. 
The tree in this case is amuna, is faith. I can have the faith. Am I going to have trust in God that does for the best? Not necessarily. It might not have the fruit, but I can have the tree. But if there's a fruit in front of me, then I know that there had to have been a tree. I can't have the fruit without the tree. I can't have it. That's bitachon. Bitachon is that fruit. I first need to have faith. What does faith mean? Faith means, as the Exodus of Egypt describes, faith means that there's not just a God that created the world. It's not just that God created the world and then he left it for us. Faith is that God created the world. And not just that he created the world, but he is intimately involved with every single aspect of this world. Every single aspect of our existence. Not a blade of grass moves without God telling it to. Anything that happens to us in this world, it's because God is directly involved with each and every one of us. Guiding, orchestrating, making things happen in order that we get into the situations that he knows what's best for us to get into. That is amuna. that is faith. Only after I have that could I then have trust in God. Because if I don't believe that there's a God, then how can I trust God? Everything's random. And if I don't believe that God is intimately involved with every single aspect of my life, then what is bitachon? What is trusting in God that whatever happens for me is for my best? What do you mean? You're not involved. You're not involved with my personal life. So you cannot have bitachon, you cannot have trust in God without faith. So therefore, in order for us to strengthen our bitachon, to strengthen our trust in God, first step is to work on our faith in God. Which means that not just God created the world, but God is intimately involved with each and every one of us. Every aspect of our lives. And then... The more I believe that, then the more trust I am able to have that whatever happened is not random. It's from you, God. And then I could trust a little bit more every single step of the way. So that's step number one. And therefore, we learn out certain things from this story of the monk. Rav Chatzko Levenstein, the great Mir Mashkiach, and then the Mashiach and the Panovich Yeshiva lived from 1885 to 1974, led the Mir Yeshiva through World War II when they were in Japan, where they were in Shanghai, in China. He says as follows. He said the Torah wasn't just telling us about the man, this heavenly food that they ate. They weren't just telling us to share a historical fact. He says it was recorded to show us in source number six that every single thing happens because of the will of God. You're in the desert. Through nature, nothing should happen. There should be absolutely no food here. You're in the desert. You can't grow anything. You can't... It's the desert. Yet... God sent the man to sustain. It's to teach us as follows. That there's nothing out of this world that God can't make happen. Every single thing, God has the ability to control. God 
is in control. He has the ability to defy the laws of nature. And that's what's represented by the man. And that's the one aspect to help us grow in our trust in God. Because when we realize that, when we realize that there is nothing that God can't do, then I have more of a readiness to put my full trust in God. Unlike a human being, as the Chobos HaLavavos does, he goes through different levels of people who we would trust. But all of those have some kind of fallacy. There is none by God. And the more I realize that God could just make something happen, the more I'm ready to put trust in Him. As the Beis HaLevi on Bitachon says as follows, the, 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 the first of the Brisk dynasty, 1820 to 1892, source number seven, he says as follows. Well, I'll read this part in English. He says, when it comes to a person's sustenance, he says, all of his knowledge and their hishtablas, their effort that they put in, will not help them to gain more of that which was decreed by God for them to have. Every Rosh Hashanah, God says for each and every one of us, this is how much money you are supposed to make this year. And you are not going to make one cent more or less than that amount that you are supposed to make. So somebody may think, well, you know what? If I work overtime, overtime, overtime the entire year, then my salary was this, but I'm going to get so much more. You know what? God is the one that said, you're going to get that. And let's say you didn't work overtime. And God said, you're going to make $200,000 this year, but my job is only making sixty. As we saw from Avchatzchel Levinson, God can do anything. There are many different vehicles that God can orchestrate for you to get the amount that you are supposed to get. That doesn't mean that you don't put in effort. That doesn't mean that you don't go to work. You have to do your due diligence, of course. But to think that I'm going to outsmart the system, that I'm going to make so much more money that which, that which was allotted to me, that doesn't happen. And he says, The Haman, the man, this heavenly food, was a sign for all generations. Ki hishtablis lo yol klau laharbis lo. That one's effort does not help to increase, as we saw from the man. The man, God said, this is the amount that you are supposed to take, that's the amount that you are going to have. And Omer's worth. If you take more, it's not going to be there. If you take less, it will fill up to that amount. This is what you are supposed to get. And there were people, as the Torah records, who tried to gather more, and then it turned into maggots and worms. It was inedible. They were not able to... Partake in that man. So my efforts were such, but God said, that's not what's going to be. That's not what's going to be. And that is represented by the man, where we have to understand that whatever was decreed at the beginning of the year on Rosh Hashanah, that is how much we are supposed to make. So this element of bitachon, of trust in God, the more we focus and appreciate that, that will automatically lend itself to this menuchas and nefesh, just peace of mind. Because when I go ahead and look at my friend, and he's wildly successful, or she's wildly successful, and I'm doing the exact same job, and I'm like, how come I'm not making all this money that they're making? So if you're not doing your due diligence so there, there may be an answer. 
But if you're doing your due, dil your due diligence, they're getting all the customers, you're not getting as many. And you're looking at them with a jealous perspective. Realize that there's nothing you could do that could affect the amount that they're supposed to get. Because that was specifically designated for them. So by you being jealous, by you trying to change that, by you trying to go all out to make more, it's not going to help. That automatically lends itself to a certain peace. Yes, we may have the question, why? We may have the question, why do they and not me? That's where bitachon, the trust, comes in, where I may have that question, but I know that whatever has happened or whatever is happening for me is for my best. I may not see it, I may not understand it, but I fully trust that it is. And that first stems from understanding, believing that God was intimately involved. That God was one that said, he's getting this much and you're getting that much. Then I'm able to work a lifetime of work to be able to have that trust, to take that deep breath of, okay, this is what it is. This is what I'm getting. And that's the best for me. Lastly here, another aspect that the man is able to help with, that is able as this timeless lesson to help us work on this trait of bitachon, of trusting in God, where, yeah, the man was thousands of years ago, this heavenly food, and we don't have heavenly food today. So how does this apply to me? Well, we just gave a few reasons how it applies, but lastly, the Chobos HaLavavos says as follows. The Chobos HaLavavos, written by Rabbeinu Bachya Ibn Pekuda, not the Rabbeinu Bachya, who's the commentary on the Torah, an earlier Rabbeinu Bachya. He lived from 1050 to 1120. And in the Musr book that he wrote of Ways of Improving Yourself, one of the gates there is called Shar Bitachon, the Gate of Trust, on page 3, source number 8. And he goes out and, and, and he sets up in his introduction how having trust in God has many benefits to a person. And he contrasts having trust in God versus an alchemist. An alchemist is someone, a chemist, who is able to produce certain substances, and we'll see why he picks that specific thing. So he says as follows. This alchemist, he's able to make gold and silver. He knows the properties. He's able to combine different things. He can make certain things. Or let's put it in today's, someone could, could print money. They could make whatever it is, Bitcoin, this or that, and they could have a currency where they could become fabulously wealthy. They're able to make money. So you were like, oh, wow, that person, I, 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 I want to go to that person. I want to be around that person. They're printing money. They're making money. That's, that's what I need in life. That's what I want. So he says as follows. He says the first thing, and I only put the first thing down. He gives 10, but I only put the first thing. He says as follows. If we stop and think, the alchemist needs certain material in order to make this gold and silver. If someone is printing money, they need certain machines, materials, to print that money. And if they don't have it, or they're on vacation, or they're in the wrong spot, or the machine broke, or the minerals are short, whatever it is, they're not able to do it. He's not able to make the gold and silver because he's dependent on maybe a specific time, maybe on the materials, many different aspects that he's dependent on that 
If those items are not available, he's not able to make the gold and silver. But he says, somebody who trusts in God, somebody who trusts in God, that their sustenance, I don't need to make the gold and silver to go ahead and buy things, but I trust in God that my sustenance, my livelihood can come through any means possible. It's not limited to money. It's not limited to the very nature that food is. There are many ways that God could provide. The alchemist is limited. Yes, he may be better off than other people. He can make gold and silver. But at the end of the day, he's limited. If I put my trust and faith in God, then I'm able to say it's limitless. It's unlimited. God could provide for me in any way possible. And he says, as we see in Deuteronomy, which quotes this aspect of the mun, that look, we would have thought, and the commentary here, the Levari on Chobos Halavos says it beautiful. He says as follows. He says, Parnassah, livelihood, is not limited to one specific thing, which we may define as a job. Right? We may define it as, you know how you support, you do it this type of way, or that type of way. We're very rigid in certain definitions. Or, you know where your food is going to come from? Food is food. This is what it is. Says the Chobos HaLavavos, the man showed us that God doesn't work the way we think. God provided the man for us as heavenly food that no one ever thought even existed. Yet it sustained the Jewish people for 40 years in the desert. God could have made it that wheat sprouted up from the desert. God could have made it that every single day there were certain fruits and vegetables that were able to grow in the desert. God could have willed it that way, of course. But the Chobos HaLavavos is telling us we would have lost out on such an important message. And that is to show us that there are many ways for livelihood. There are many ways for sustenance. It's not limited to the way that we think. God has so many different tricks so many different tools in his arsenal that is able to provide livelihood, sustenance, food, shell, any type of thing for each and every person. The man gets us to think a little out the box to appreciate the full power that God has. Where in the desert, where are you getting food from? Conventional wisdom says there is no food. There's nothing conventional when it comes to God. Because God made the man fall every single day constantly there was no money to go buy it there was no nature way of describing how this could have happened other than god allowed it to happen and the more we focus on these types of things we'll be able to increase our bitachon our trust in god obviously first as we saw from Nachmanides, first step is to believe that not just there is a god not just that god created the world but that God is intimately involved with each and every one of us, guiding us every single step of the way to where we are in our lives, who we've met, what we're doing. Every single aspect is divinely orchestrated. And then once I believe that, and that's constantly strengthening every single day, then I can have trust in God. But what does it mean to have trust in God? It's to appreciate one of many things the power that God has as we see from these sources of the man 
That there's no such thing as conventional way. God could provide for us in any way possible. Don't think that, oh, if I can buck the system and I can get so much more, if I go ahead and work, 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 it's not going to change the amount that you were supposed to make. Maybe from your work you got so much more money, but you ended up getting hit with this bill and that bill, and at the end of the year, your income was the exact amount that God said it was supposed to be. The more we focus on the timeless lesson of the month, the more we allow ourselves to further strengthen this trait called bitachon of trusting in God, which are many aspects. So for this week, as we leave this class, to stop and think about how God is intimately involved with me. To stop and think some aspect of the week of, who I met, of a phone call that I had, of this person emailed me out of the blue that I would never have thought, whatever it may be, just stop and focus on that. And that was orchestrated by God. It's not random. It's not a coincidence. It's God making that happen because it needs to happen for your own benefit. And when we're able to appreciate that, we're able to have a little bit more trust because we're not putting trust in a human being, which has certain fallacy. We're putting trust in God which is the entity that has the ability to provide anything. There's no aspect of conventional. It's whatever God wants, that's what's going to be. And he has many vehicles to allow that to happen. When we think a little out the box, we're able to put our trust a little bit more in God, to appreciate our, our livelihood, our sustenance, every single thing is, I'm trusting in you, God, that it's for the best. You are specifically designing this for me. Not that it's easy, but it's for the best. And that will allow a certain peace within us of there's someone else running the show. There are certain things that are out of my control. And that's all up to God, the entity that has the ability to do everything and anything. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Have a wonderful week.